It's been a great worship service so far. It's great to have everyone here together on Sunday morning. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I want to wish everyone uh, Lashana Tova. Ah, all right. Some people know what I'm talking about. Our uh, Jewish friends are celebrating uh, Rosh Hashanah tomorrow. And uh, for those that don't know, that's why school is off for the next couple of days. And uh, it's a Jewish holiday where uh, there's a 10-day period of prayer and reflection and apologizing for your sins for the past year. And then at the end of that time, Yom Kippur comes, the Day of Atonement. And uh, in times past, uh, we even in our congregation have imitated the spirit of that holiday to take some time and reflect on our own spiritual lives. And as we've been studying out the book of Daniel in this series called Dream, we even did that a couple of weeks ago, where in the same way that Daniel and his three amigos took the 10-day test uh, that they were in, we decided to take some time and spend 10 days of reflection and prayer about things that we can work on. I heard some great feedback uh, from that. And then last week, I thought Daniel Kennard did a wonderful job preaching Daniel chapter two. Outstanding work. And uh, we again got into the story there, Daniel interpreting this dream from the king. And in both chapters, him and his boys look like they're doing well by the end. They get into some trouble, then God works it out, and they're even promoted. So let's find out what's going on in chapter three. One thing that's interesting is even though the whole book is called Daniel, Daniel himself doesn't make an appearance in Daniel chapter three. Of course, you guys already knew that, right? Just his three buddies... And his three buddies get into a hot mess. And uh, Daniel may be away on official palace business. We're not exactly sure why. Uh, but he's not in the picture in this chapter. And uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, this idea that sometimes when your loved ones are going through problems and you either don't know about it or you're too far away to do anything physical about it, that could be really hard, right? And again, the theme of Daniel is coming through, even as we start chapter three, that it's all about relying on God and not on our own gifts and talents and what we can do when it comes to hard times. So today's lesson is called Fireproof. Daniel chapter three, verse one. It reads, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So that group of people, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then they stood before it. Verse 4 then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's stop there for now and we'll continue in just a minute. Now, sometimes you read chapter two into chapter three and 
feel like no time has gone by. But actually, the time between the two chapters, some commentators estimate, is as many as 20 years. And so in the beginning of Daniel 1, we meet these teenagers and they're sort of growing up as exiles in this foreign land, trying to figure out how to worship their God in a pagan world. Uh, Now they've grown up in that culture, but they've stayed strong in their convictions. And now they're sort of men in their 30s, perhaps. So the, the question is, what's changed? What's changed in 20 years? If someone were to ask you that, what has changed in the last 20 years of your life? Would you have a list of things to share? Or is it the same? Okay, some weren't even born. All right, we have the campus ministry here. A lot has changed, hopefully, for you. But in their worlds, actually not much has changed. Same people are still in charge. The king is still a narcissist. Daniel's crew still has their righteousness. And the conflict goes on. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the context. There's this statue, this totem pole-esque looking monstrosity, about 90 feet tall. That's what the cubit action was and about nine feet wide. And it wasn't uncommon for leaders to erect these kinds of statues in their own honor, whether it was for themselves, an image of themselves or for a God that they worship. In fact, the great Sphinx of Egypt, uh, which was, you know, erected 2,500 years ago, was 70 feet high and 240 feet long. Now, this particular statue was interesting It was laden in gold, this huge thing, probably on the inside was wood and then overlaid in gold. And you ask yourself, well, why? Why did Nebuchadnezzar decide to do this this thing? And you can say, well, he's selfish. You already said he's a narcissist. Well, don't forget what happened in the last chapter. He had a dream, right? And Daniel interpreted the dream and said, the dream that you had of this big statue is broken down like the empires of the future starting with you, Babylon at the head, which was made of gold. And then it went through uh, all of the different, the Assyrians, the Romans, all the way through the history of what would happen as we now look back. This incredible prophecy. But instead of listening to God's word and the prophet Daniel interpreting it in the way that God would want him to understand, he decided to interpret it in his own way. He said, wow, that was a cool statue. Since my head was the gold anyway, let's just make a whole statue made out of gold and I'll just champion this thing and and continue to impress everybody with my power. See, he misinterprets God's word. You might say that he had itching ears, itching ears. He wanted to hear what he wanted to hear. There's a great scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. That says, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You see, sometimes we could be in a sermon, we could be reading the Bible, and instead of hearing what God is trying to tell us, we approach the text with our own personal agenda. And we start to read into the scriptures what we would like to hear out of them. That's what's called itching ears. I remember many years ago, I was part of a campus ministry in Los Angeles. And uh, there was a day when a lot of the, the brothers were going to fast. They weren't going to eat any food uh, for a day. They were going to you know, drink water and they were going to spend that time praying and, and focusing on different things in the upcoming year. And I remember that one of the guys in the campus ministry had been reading the Bible and said, well, fasting means not eating food. So that doesn't mean that I can't use my blender to blend up some food and then drink it. So he went to McDonald's 
and put multiple cheeseburgers in his blender and made a smoothie and drank it so that he could continue his fast and not eat any food. See, sometimes we read into the scriptures what we want to hear out of them. You know, there, there are some pretty serious scriptures in the Bible, some pretty, pretty hefty expectations for people that want to follow Jesus and be his disciple. You know, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 7 that says, you know, if you burn with passion, if you are feeling the desire to, to have a mate, then, you know, you should get married. And, and some people could read into that and say, well, I, I have all this lust. That must be a license for me to get married. And so the motivation becomes, I'm going to get married to solve all of my impurity problems. And that's not simply what the Bible says. The Bible actually has a lot of scriptures that talk about what motivations we need to have. That blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a scripture that says some people have the gift of this and the gift of that and the gift of preaching or prophecy. And someone might read that and say, well, well, this is a scripture that says some people have this gift of sharing their faith. So that means I don't need to. I'll leave that to the professionals. And yet there are so many scriptures that talk about us becoming fishers of men and women, ambassadors and reconcilers and ministry being able to reconcile people back to God, to reach out to people and to share our faith. You know, the Bible, sometimes people might read and go, well, it doesn't say that I need to have a, uh, what some might call a discipling partner. And yet there are over 30 New Testament mandates that we should be in one another relationships, that Jesus doesn't hold back saying, I command you to have this kind of relationship with one another. In 2 Corinthians 9, the scripture talks about giving money, giving our contribution to God and to the church. And we read scriptures and say, well, it says to give as much as I am able. And I'm just not able right now. I'm able to get a latte, but I'm not able to go give to the church. And we start to read into it what we want to get out of it. Oh, I get advice. I get the kind of advice I like to hear. And the answer, of course, is that we need advisors that are going to love us enough to tell us the truth, the truth and love. Do you have itching ears? Do you have itching ears? Do you, when you're in a, a, maybe a disagreement with someone, are you quick to make your case to a couple of friends that will quickly agree with you? Are you counting the likes on your Facebook posts? Every one of them just to justify how you're feeling when all those emotions are spilling out. I've been there. I've been itchy. I think we've all been itchy at different times, right? I've scoured the internet to find someone to have the same opinion as I have. I've done it. I've been there. And I think it's human nature, right? It's human nature. We crave approval and we hate being hurt. And so we act in different ways when we're hurt. And I would argue that, you know, there's a couple of different ways to deal with an itch. You can either scratch the itch or you can put salve on the itch. You know, scratching the itch is easy to do, right? It itches, scratches, itches, scratches. And that's a temporary fix because probably you're going to itch again. Salve is like a healing ointment, a, a lotion, a cream, something you put on to heal and perhaps also to prevent. You know, in this situation, spiritually, the salve for us, for our itching ears is very simple. It's being humble enough to get people to give us a 360 degree view of ourselves. To be brave enough to ask someone maybe that we're intimidated by to say, would you be willing to give me some honest feedback about things that you see? I want a different 
perspective about things that I can work on in my character. Amen? Let's keep going. Keep going. Daniel chapter 3. Let's look back in our text. We'll pick it up in verse 8. It says, At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Skip ahead to verse 11. It says, Whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. All right, we talked about itching ears. Let's talk about something else here. Thousands of people are probably bowing. Uh, How do we know that? Well, the king can't see clearly with that many people. And so this one group of people starts to point out what's going on. So to set the stage, thousands of people are bowing down in this text and three people are standing. All right. These are our heroes. And who's the group that comes in to denounce our heroes? It's the haters, the astrologers. Now, why are they such haters? Right. You have to look backwards. Well, really, it's because they have envious eyes. They have envying eyes. Why? Why are they envious of these three, these three Jews? Well, they're bitter because in the previous chapters, we see these three and Daniel, four, get promoted over them. The astrologer's job, well, one of the jobs is to interpret some of the dreams. Of course, these guys were able to interpret the dreams that the astrologers weren't. They're bitter. They got promoted over them. They're envious. They're not even their kind. And so there starts to be a break, a split between the races. All right. Also, if you look back at the text you read at the beginning, the first seven verses, remember those two lines of people I read painstakingly, right? Remember the satraps and the governors and the officials, right? It's mentioned twice. Do you see astrologers there? Astrologers weren't invited to the VIP party, right? So all of these important people are invited to the inaugural unveiling of this big statue. But the astrologers, man, they've been dissed for too long. And there they are on the side. And honestly, I don't even know if they were bowing. Because if everyone's bowing, how are they able to see those that are standing up? So they're just filled with bitterness. And they start pointing the finger. Look at those guys. And they quickly bring them to the king. You know, it says in verse 12, they denounced the Jews. You know what? They didn't have to bring up their race. They didn't have to do that. They could have just said these three guys are not doing what you asked them to do. But you know, when people start calling people out by their appearance or by their race or by their ethnicity, there's some stuff underneath. The racism starts to be exposed here in the astrologers from Babylon. And the actual Aramaic that you translate from denounce the Jews there in verse 12 literally translates to they ate the pieces of. In other words, they chewed them out. They were so disgusted, so filled with envy and bitterness that they were just breathing out poisonous venom. They're filled with envy. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 30, it talks about envy. It says a heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. You know, bitter envy, it's that poison that you drink thinking it will kill your enemy. You know, you get filled with the poison. You get filled with the rage and the anger. You start spilling over with all your emotions and pointing the finger and feeling all that neglect and dismissal. But then you turn in to exactly what it is that you wish on your enemy. The bitterness kills you inside. These are envious eyes. 
Do you have envying eyes? Did someone take your job or get promoted past you or take your position or get the role that you wanted or the grade you wanted or maybe the relationship that you were looking forward to someone else got? Did someone get the credit for work you feel like you did? This is some of the things that can produce envious eyes. And then what happens? And again, I think we can all relate. We start obsessing over it, right? We start imagining that person or that thing that happened and we start dwelling on it. We start thinking of arguments in our head. We start imagining getting into a confrontation with that person. What am I going to say? And we start writing down what we're going to say. And then we can't sleep. And then we start dreaming about it. And the dream turns into a nightmare. And then there's a conflict that becomes inevitable because you created a doomsday in your own mind. You know, the only way to kill envy is love. It's love. It's the only way to kill it. The question, if you're envying someone, is have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for the person you're envying? Have you prayed for the person you're angry at? Have you prayed for the person that you think has wronged you? The object of our anger can become the object of our empathy. That's the decision we make. And perhaps, you know what? Perhaps they are sinning against you. All the more reason to pray for them. What does Jesus do when he's on the cross? He prays for who? For the people who are torturing and executing him. If he's our example, then we need to be imitating it. Amen? We have to stop wishing these people would go to hell and start praying for them to go to heaven. Yes, I said it, because that's what we think. Man, I pray God smites them, that they get struck by lightning, that something bad happens, and then they'll really know, because they'll face the God of justice. We start wishing all this bad on them. In the process, that's the poison we're drinking. Pray for their motivations. Pray for them to be held accountable. Pray for the truth to come out and for God to help them and us to repent. Amen? Itching ears and envying eyes. Now let's move on. Let's go back to the text. Verse 12, you with me? Man, this is just full of good stuff right here. Not enough time. Amen. We're moving. Verse 12. Here's where they get caught. And what I want to address here in the next four verses, 12, 13, 14, 15, just look on with me. But what happens is once they get caught and brought up to the king, there's these opportunities that they have to break their conviction and sort of blend back in to the culture. Okay, you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Look at it. Look at it. So in verse 12, they're caught. They make the decision. I'm not going to bow down to the idol. They get caught. They get pointed out. Okay, that's verse 12. Then verse 13, they get brought before the king. And it's a great chance to break on their conviction right here, sort of on their way up to the throne. Like, like, you know, Abednego goes, wait, there's a misunderstanding. I just have a really tall torso. So it looked like I was standing, but I was really bowing, right? You could sort of go back on your convictions and try to convince the people bringing you up there that it was a big mistake. Don't you know me? I've worked for you for 20 years. Like I would not, I wouldn't do that. Right? Meshach has bad knees. He was standing because he had bad knees. I don't know. So, all, so another chance to make the excuse and break conviction. They're caught, then they're brought, and then they get face to face and they fight. They, have a, they get fought by the king. And he says, is it true that I hear that you guys were standing? Is it true that you defy me? Yet another opportunity. Here's the king asking them and they could say, nope, sorry, you got it wrong. Remember these astrologers, you promoted us over them, right? They don't really understand. So they got it wrong again. 
or we were just messing around trying to see if you saw us, right? We get caught in these situations sometimes and we excuse ourselves out of our convictions, but they don't do that. And then in verse 15, he gives them another chance to squat. I just think in rhyme, they got caught, they get brought, they fought, and then they squat. All right, so in verse 15, the king says, now I'm giving you another chance. Do you remember what the command was? If you don't bow, what happens? Burned. Here, all of these opportunities have come up for these three special VIPs. And yet they're getting another one from the king himself. All right, listen, from now on, when you hear the band play, you need to bow. You know, sometimes we get ready for a spiritual fight and we survive the first round. And sometimes we can be convinced that the, there's only one round of the spiritual fight when there's so many more waiting, right? Do you know what I'm saying? But you think, man, I'm in the clear. But Satan is not a one-punch fighter. He's coming back. There's a scripture that says, sometimes you clear out the demons. He comes back with seven of his friends. He's not going to relent. He's not going to stop just because you got one victory. He's coming back again and again and again. But some of us get really surprised, right? We have a great spiritual victory. Yeah, I did it. Man, I said no to that temptation, itching ears. You know, I, I said no to that impurity. I said no when I was tempted with that thing. And then we're surprised when we get another temptation. We say things like, when it rains, it pours. Oh my God, I can't believe it. Hasn't that happened enough times though for us to go, yeah, I'm used to this. I'm gonna get attacked, not just once, maybe seven times. You know, there's a period in my life a couple of years ago where a series of unfortunate events happen around the same time. And uh, I got stung in the eye by a bee. And then I, I broke my finger, cracked it in a couple places. Then my wife went to the hospital. I got lice. I won't show you a picture of that. And then I got rushed, you know, to the quarantine room in the hospital because the doctor said I had meningitis, the kind that kills you. And it turned out to be pneumonia. Yay. All right. But it was um, just all this stuff going down and, and scary stuff. And why is this happening? And when is this Lemony Schnicket's Job episode going to end and my life go back to normal? You ever feel like that? Like, when is my life going to go back to normal? Things are so hard right now. There's so many challenges in my life. And it started to convict me because I realized perhaps I have idolized normal. And, you know, I think God just had enough of me idolizing my very comfortable normal life. Because what is a normal life? Yeah, think about that in your mind. When you say it, normal, I just want normal, normal. Well, if we start to buy into the fantasy that normal means pain-free, problem-free, conflict-free, and, and no struggles and problems and issues that you're going to have to resolve, then Satan's already won. Because you put all your security into that fantasy world that everything is normal, and then only one thing has to happen to break the chain in your faith and your security, and we're lost. We're lost. They put it, all we have to do is go into the Job effect and we're out for the count because we have put our security in the normal, which is gone. Honestly, I think the abnormal is normal, especially in New York City, right? Never a day alike. Always something new and different and challenging. It depends on our perspective. And these three Hebrew amigos say it better than I can. In verse 17, 
Let's read together. I put it on the screen here. It says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, this is their response. This is their answer to what the king is saying to them. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you set up. It's one of the greatest statements of faith in all of scripture. God could rescue us, but it's not necessarily true that he would rescue us. And our faith is unconditional, regardless of what circumstances may come. It's kind of like God's love. It's not about the circumstance. It's unconditional. Because we can start saying, oh, well, I'll have faith as long as you keep me safe. No, that doesn't make any sense. Can you imagine God saying, I'll love you as long as you never sin against me? Is that a fair trade? Okay, great. So I'll have faith in you as long as you keep me safe. And then, okay, you love me as long as I don't sin against you. Wait a minute. That's going to happen in like two minutes. So I'm in trouble if I set up that, that issue, right? See, that's not the way it works. There's a great uh, commentator, Stephen Miller, I've been reading lately on Daniel, and he says this. Does God have all the power? Yes. Is God able to deliver believers from all problems and trials? Yes. But does, but does God deliver believers from all trials? No. God may allow trials to come in lives of his people to build character or for a number of other reasons. And he references Romans 5. The purpose for trials may not always be understood, but God simply asks that his children trust him, even when it's not easy. As Job, who endured incredible suffering, exclaimed, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Although God does not guarantee that his followers will never suffer or experience death, he does promise always to be with them. In times of trial, the believer's attitude should be that of these young men. And was the Lord with our three heroes in their hour of desperate need? Yeah, absolutely, right? Check it out in verse 25. Scroll down with me. Verse 25, Daniel chapter three. He said, look, the king's a little surprised. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening in the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. We'll stop there. You know, first there's three, and then all of a sudden there's four, right? And it's the world's most epic photo bomb, right? And some say, well, it's an angel. It's, it's the angel Gabriel. But a lot of people say, no, this is God, God himself in the flesh. This is a pre-type of Jesus himself. Allowing himself to come down in the body to give comfort to these three guys in their greatest hour of need. I think it's one of the best pictures of Christianity anyone could think of. There's you your faith is in the flames. You're with your siblings in the Lord. And Jesus is right there with you, helping you to get through the hottest fires of your life. And I believe that's what changes hearts 
It's the miracle of our faith. You know, the king, he sees a situation and he's blown away, right? Yes, he's blown away because they don't burn. And yes, he's blown away because Jesus makes a cameo. But look what he says in the middle of verse 28. Go there with me. Verse 28. It says, they trusted in him. This is what the king says when, he's, when all is said and done. They trusted in him and defied me, mine, the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. What is he making note of more than the other miracles that he witnesses? Well, he's saying what sticks out is their faith. That faith doesn't burn. That they were fireproof, whether they died or not. You know, if we believe in a God that created the macro and the micro of the universe, the quarks and the black holes and the galaxies and the intricacies of anatomy, the life and breath of creatures on this earth, heartbeats and tendons and neurosynapses firing in our minds, custom-designed spider's web and snowflakes and every red blood cell and white blood cell, then isn't he also the God that can be with you in the fire? If you believe that, that God made the universe, can't you also believe that we can tap into that power right here, right now? According to your faith, it will be done. He can be there with you. He can answer your prayer. Can he help you pass a class? Isn't that tiny for God? Isn't that like, really? Pass a class? Ask me something harder. And you know what I mean. He can, he can get you through the worst fires. Now, is it a guarantee that you're not going to go through pain? No. But there's a guarantee that he's going to be with you through it. He'll be with you at chemo, at radiation, surgery at the bedside of someone who's dying that you love, at the funeral, he will be there every step of the way. And isn't that what we really want? We want a God that never leaves our side. It says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You notice the word when is used, correct? So it's not if. If you go through the rivers. If you pass through the waters. If you ever go through some hard times. If fires ever come close to your body. Now he says when. Expect it. And if it's not a river... It's a big body of water. If it's not water, it's fire. If it's not that, it's snow. Some's going to come. What I'm telling you is I'll be with you. And his rod and his staff will protect us. You know, whatever your furnace today, whatever your itching ears want to hear or your envying eyes want to see, hear and see that your God is good, that he's all powerful and he will stay with you when the fires are burning. Let's bow our heads and pray for the communion. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now and some of us are actually deeply in the throes of fires right now. We are fighting debilitating diseases. We are mourning the loss of loved ones. Some of us are suffering emotionally, mentally, spiritually, God. And Father, we desperately need you to remind us that you're right there with us. 
And we want to thank you for the ultimate example of this whole lesson, and that's your son, Jesus. That, that when he wanted a different reality, he went to you, he got on his knees, he prays to God, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but I'm ready to do whatever your will is. Just be with me. God, thank you for his example. Thank you that he ultimately bent his will and aligned it with yours. Thank you for these three men. This example from so long ago, but still so relevant for us as we struggle with idols in our life, tempted to bow down to the temptations that we have constantly around us. God, help us to stand when everyone else is bowing. Help us to count the cost and be willing not to break after chance, after chance, after chance comes to excuse ourselves from it. And God, help us to be humble enough to get a 360 view of where we're really at. As you remember the death on the cross and what Jesus did for us, as we take the bread and the cup, Father, we ask that you forgive us our many sins and help us to draw into you and to your forgiveness. We love you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.